Well, it's good to be with you. This goes this way. It's good to be with you this morning. Can you hear me okay? Terrific. Sorry about that, Mark. I'm sure Taz can fix it. Well, um, it's great to be with you today. I'm looking forward to sharing some of the truths from Scripture that surround this time of year. Um, And actually, we've already had the sermon. We've seen it in the words of the music that we've just sung, and uh, we pretty much could go home now. But um, since we've prepared and we're here and we're dressed up and look great, why don't we spend some time in Scripture and um, see where the Lord will take us this morning. I want to get you to do something with me. I want you to, I'm going to ask you a question. So I want you to shut your eyes. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay? Everybody got your eyes shut? Thomas, your eyes aren't shut. All right, so the first thing that pops into your mind, what's the first thing that you think of when you hear the word Christmas? Go. Everybody got it? Brendan? Amen. (laughs) Okay, completely unplanned, but there's the sermon again. Okay, it was kind of a rhetorical question, but nevertheless, each of you has something in mind when you hear the word Christmas, right? Some of you are thinking ahead to food. Okay, for Todd, it's rolls, but if he doesn't have butter... No, you got butter, but no rolls, right? Yeah. Well, for some, it's family. Christmas is a time for us to share with family, right? For some, it has to do with gifts. For some, it's the nativity. For some, it's Jesus. And for some, it's the whole story. So, did anyone, though, think about the cross? It's just a question. So Christmas brings about all sorts of thoughts for all sorts of people, and everyone without exception has some level of emotional reaction to Christmas. For many, Christmas is a holiday season. It's a cultural event focused on shopping, eating, and indulging. For others, Christmas is about vacation, about travel to remote parts of the world. For others, Christmas has more to do with being home with family, and in many cases, These family gatherings require an overall tolerance of one another, especially Uncle Joe, just for a couple of days. Now, if your name's Joe and you're an uncle, I'm sorry, but it's just the name that came to mind. For some time, or for some people, it's a time of great loneliness and depression because they're missing loved ones. But in each of these scenarios, there's a cultural drive to the celebration of Christmas, In other words, someone's spiritual beliefs and convictions about Christmas are not really included in the above scenarios. Now, as soon as you begin to add the spiritual side of the story, things change. We hear people talk about the spirit of giving, how it's better to give than receive. We hear about the baby Jesus, about shepherds, wise men from afar. I've always wondered exactly where afar was, but nevertheless... But even spiritual folks get drawn into 
the Christmas season with Christmas trees, Christmas lights, wrapping paper, etc. Interestingly, did you know that the Germans are credited with the Christmas tree tradition? And that some suggest that Martin Luther first put lighted candles on the tree to replicate stars in the night sky through the evergreen trees as he was walking home while preparing a sermon one night. But I digress. I'm not suggesting that we would go back to Puritan times where Christmas trees were prohibited because ancient civilizations used evergreen trees to celebrate the return of life at the time of the winter solstice. I mean, I love Christmas trees as much as the next person. I'm not suggesting that we would stop giving gifts. One of the things we tend to focus on in our culture is gift giving. And we justify it with an illustration of the Magi bringing gifts to Christ and especially with the gift of Christ. I really don't have any issues with gift giving. But the truth be told, we tend to get more focused on the gift receiving. I'm not really trying to bash Christmas trees, lights, or gifts, nor, I, nor do I want to have a huge debate over any of these things this morning. But I would like to take some time to discuss the history and the real issues and purposes surrounding our celebration of Christmas. Now, before we get too far along, I want us to pray together, and then I'm going to start reading the Nativity story in chapter 2 of Luke. So pray with me if you would. Father, we're thankful that you've given us the chance to be together today as a family. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your protection, your grace and mercy that allows us to be together as a church family. We thank you that during this time of year you've given us an opportunity to give thanks for uh, this baby that you offer to take away the sins of the world. And Lord, today we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear the truth of your scripture about who he really is. And so, Father, be with us today as we share some time in your word. And we thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke 2. Mine has these really neat little tabs today that uh, tell me exactly where to go, so y'all better try to keep up. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, 
praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So we've heard this story. In fact, we've heard it many times. But do we truly understand and comprehend what it means for us personally? Why does it matter that Christ was born of a virgin, that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem? Why do shepherds and wise men matter? And the truth is, if our comprehension stops here, it doesn't. If we simply focus on the nativity, simply talk about Christ's birth, and that's all we understand about who he was as a, as a human and as God, we miss the, po- the point. If we don't understand the full gamut of Scripture from prophecy of Christ's birth to his life, ministry, death on a cross, and ultimately his resurrection, it really doesn't matter, not to us anyway. If we don't understand the context of his birth, we won't experience the joy of the gift that this child brings. Today we're going to try to answer a question. What's Christmas without the cross? What you're going to find is that the title really should probably be What's Christmas Without His Life, Death, and Resurrection, and the Celebration of Easter, but that really didn't fit in the program. So what's Christmas without the cross? The answer is pretty simple, really. Christmas is nothing without the cross and the subsequent resurrection. And I'm convinced that until we understand this truth at the core of who we are, we will never truly experience the joy that God intends for us in this life and especially during the Christmas season. And even when we do understand the scriptural truths of Christ, our culture, our culture has the potential from distracting us from these truths. So here's where we're headed today. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the celebration of Christmas. We're going to talk about the incarnation, including the virgin birth, Christ's humanity, and his deity. And we will clearly establish who Christ or who Jesus is. We're going to talk about his life, his death, and resurrection, and what these mean for us personally. And finally, I hope that the Holy Spirit brings us to a place where we can celebrate Jesus' birth like never before because of our understanding of what his life, death, and resurrection mean to us personally. Well, Christmas is the most recent of the Christian festivals. The name comes from Christ's Mass, and it began to be used in the Middle Ages. Early in church history, there was the observance of the death and resurrection of Christ that we celebrate as Easter. And before the 4th century, before Christmas was celebrated, some churches observed something called Epiphany which means appearance or celebrating the manifestation of God to the world. Now, originally, Epiphany celebrated Christ's birth, his baptism, and the visit of the Magi. Epiphany was celebrated on January 6th, and once Christmas began to be celebrated on December 25th, the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany have, were um, 
called the 12 days of Christmas. Now, during the 4th century, the controversy over whether Jesus was truly God or simply a created being led to an increased emphasis on the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now, the affirmation that the Word became flesh that's talked about in John 1.14, it's likely that the urgency to proclaim the Incarnation was an important factor in the spread of the celebration of Christmas. In Rome during the 4th century, the Feast of the Unconquerable Sun, S-U-N, celebrated the beginning of the return of the sun. The winter solstice was a time when this was celebrated, and it was a time where the days were short. The days were as short as they're going to get, and the night was going to be as long as it's going to be. So from that point, the days began to get longer and longer again, and then springtime happened, and life, uh, the, the trees would grow, etc. Okay. So as a response, when Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire, the church either had to suppress these festivals or transform them. The winter solstice must have seemed like an appropriate time to celebrate Christ's birth. We don't know the exact date of the birth of Christ, but December 25th was likely chosen to combat these various festivals held in conjunction with the winter solstice. Thus, the festival of the sun, S-U-N, became the festival of the sun, S-O-N, and the light of the world conquered the darkness. Shortly after Advent was established, Advent is a period of time that we celebrate as well uh, that was put in place to provide a period of weeks to prepare to allow us to get our hearts in focus for the celebration of the Christ child. So if Christmas was started to remind believers about the Incarnation, then in the spirit of Christmas, let's do that. What's the Incarnation? What does that mean? We, we heard about it. We sung about it. Uh, but what does that mean to us? Well, incarnation, the word means in flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, took on an additional nature of humanity or flesh through the virgin birth. Christ remained deity, but he also possessed the true sinless humanity in one person. John 1, 1 through 18 describes the incarnation of Christ. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the subject of the devotional, Advent devotional that... Todd's put in the, in the bulletin for you today for you to take home for your family. So let's talk about the virgin birth. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We heard about that. We sang about it earlier. So what I'd like to do now is read Matthew 1, chapter, or Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, 
and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, this passage gives us some of the background to the Luke 2 passage. Here we see that the Isaiah passage, the prophecy in Isaiah, is fulfilled. But note also in verse 21 that it says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. But how was this child going to save his people from their sins? Well, first let's talk about who he was and who he is, and then we'll answer this question. Let's talk about the humanity of Christ. Jesus was a man. Why is it important to recognize that Jesus was a man? Well, he had to be if he was to satisfy the law and become the perfect sacrifice, the perfect, spotless, sinless human that served as payment for our sins. He had to be flesh and bone to die for humanity. John 1.14 explains this to us. So if you'll flip to John 1.14. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as I mentioned, the other portions of the first uh, half of the chapter, chapter 1 of John talks more about the incarnation. But this specific passage talks about the Word, or Jesus, becoming flesh. Now, we know Christ was a man because he experienced human feelings. He experienced human emotions. He became hungry, Matthew 4.2. He became tired, John 4.6. He was thirsty, John 4.7. He wept over Lazarus' death, John 11:34-35. He experienced grief and wept over the city of Jerusalem, Matthew 23:37. And of course, he experienced the pain and anguish of scourging and death on a cross, as described in Mark chapter 15. But there's a problem. If Jesus was a man, he would have sinned because all men sin, right? Not this man. We've already discussed that he was born of a virgin, born of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, if he had been born of two humans, then yes, he would have sinned. But since Jesus Christ was from the Holy Spirit by the virgin birth, he was fully God and fully man, and in him there was no sin. 1 John 3.5 tells us, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He was man, yet in him there is no sin. He was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. He lived a life without sin as a human, but he did not sin. Now, while the early church must have experienced false teachers attempting to spread doubt that Christ was really a man, it's the subject matter of 1 John, currently we don't seem to have much trouble recognizing Christ's humanity. In fact, most or many religions recognize Christ as a man. The difference is they deny his deity. These other religions call Jesus a prophet or a God, little g, but they deny that he is God, the one true God. 
Now, Paul ends, writes that an attack on the deity of Christ is an attack on the bedrock of Christianity. At the heart of orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for a lost humanity. If Jesus were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. But because of his deity, his death had infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world. We know Christ was God. His attributes are consistent with God's attributes. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is life. In him was life, John 1.4. Jesus is omnipresent. He lives in us, John 14.27. Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things, John 16.30. Jesus is omnipotent. He had the power to forgive sins, something only God could do, Mark 2.5. And Jesus is immutable. He's unchangeable. He does not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus' attributes and his character indicate that he is God. His works also confirm that he is God. He's the creator. All things were created by him. John 1.3 and Colossians 1.15-16. He is the sustainer. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. He is the forgiver of sin. He was the healer of the paralytic and the forgiver of sin. Mark chapter 2. And throughout the, the Gospels we see time after time miracles of healings and wonders. Perhaps one of the greatest places to read about Christ's character is in the book Todd just led us through, Colossians. So as you're turning there, Colossians chapter 1. I believe this passage provides a terrific picture of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Todd, thanks for leading us through that, by the way. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven." You see, in this passage, we see that Jesus was created in God's image, that in all things, uh, in Jesus, all things were created. 
he holds all things together, and he reconciled all things through the blood of his cross. We have the hope established in the gospel. Now, in addition to a study of Christ's attributes and works, we can study the names of Jesus because they explain Jesus as God, as Lord, and the Son of God, all which support his deity. Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1 explains Jesus as God, creator, and the one who sits at the right hand of God. And I would encourage you to read chapter 1 of Hebrews if you haven't in a while. It's a terrific minder of just who Christ is and his superiority. John chapter 20, 26 to 29, you'll remember that the risen Christ comes to the disciples in the upper room. Thomas is doubting. And what does Jesus do? He says, look here at my hands and my feet. And then he asks Thomas to reach his hand into his side where he was pierced with the sword. And Thomas responds by saying, my Lord and my God. Titus 2, 1, or sorry, 11 through 15, Paul is explaining to Titus the proper response to God's grace. He says that we should deny ungodliness and worldly desires and look for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 13. John 1, 18 refers to Jesus as the begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. The bottom line, Jesus is God. Jesus is also referred to as Lord. Romans 10, 9 through 15, Paul speaks of confessing that Jesus is Lord and the belief that Jesus was raised from the dead in verse 9. Verses 10 to 13 deal with the heart of belief, and Paul quotes Joel 2.32 where he says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul makes the point that only one that truly believes can truly call on the Lord in verse 14. Jesus is also referred to as the Son of God. John chapter 5, Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath, and the Jews are upset about it. When Jesus responds to their question of why do you heal on the Sabbath, he responds that his Father is working and that he is working. The Jews recognized his response as meaning that he was equal to God, and so they were seeking to put him to death for calling himself the Son of God. John chapter 5, verse 18. You see, Jesus was there when the world was created. He created it. He came to earth in the form of a man to save his people from their sins. He possesses all the attributes of humanity except for sin, and yet he retained all of the characteristics of his deity. It was this perfect being, fully God and fully man, that allowed him to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's this sacrifice that makes his birth so important. It's this gift that we can never forget. So let's take a look a little bit at his life. Let's look at his death and his resurrection. And how do we know that Jesus really died for our sins? What does that really mean? Let's take a look in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6 6 says, 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, Isaiah's prophecy explains that the Messiah will suffer and die for our sins. And as we flip back to the book of John, we're going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. John chapter 19. We'll see a story as uh, Pilate is going through the... the Examination of Jesus, and it will talk about his scourging. John chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him and said, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So, John chapter 19, these verses shows the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Pilate had Jesus scourged, but the Jews wanted him crucified. Pilate asks why. And they reply that Jesus, Jesus should die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And as we've discussed in John 5:18, the Jews viewed the claim of being the Son of God to indicate equality with God, deity, and therefore blasphemy. So let's read a little bit farther as we go in John chapter 19, verses 17 to 19. So they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the, place called, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. So Pilate said that he was not guilty, and yet he was crucified. As we continue, John 19, 23 to 24, 
we learn that further prophecy was fulfilled. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a relation to Psalm 22:18, a fulfillment of the prophecy that uh, they would cast lots for the clothing of the Savior, clothing of the Savior. So Jesus is on the cross. The soldiers are casting lots for his clothing. And Jesus cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Described for us in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And under the sheer anguish of the weight of the sins of his people, Jesus cries out to God. John chapter 19 Verse 28 through 30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We look down at verse 34. It says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, we might read that and say, well, he was dead on the cross. They stabbed him with a spear. But what difference does it make that they didn't break any bones? Well, earlier in this chapter, they talk about um, as Jesus dies, the weather, if you will, begins to change, and they begin to get frightened. And so in order to kill the other two prisoners, what they do is they break their legs so that they can no longer push themselves up to take a breath, and they would... Asphyxiate. That one's not written on the page. So that they would not be able to breathe and they would die more quickly. But as they come to Jesus, he's already dead. So they don't break his legs. Instead, they stab him with a spear and blood and water comes out. You say, well, what difference does that really make? Well, if you think about the celebration of the Passover, it makes sense. Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 talks about the Passover lamb where no bone was to be broken. In Psalm 34:20, this is directly related to our Lord. Exodus chapter 12 describes the Passover which began when the Israelites were in captivity by the Egyptians. If you'll remember during the plagues and Pharaoh's stubbornness, God tells the Israelites to kill an unblemished lamb and place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts so that the angel of death will pass over their homes on the way to killing the Egyptian firstborn. And it was after this plague that Pharaoh was broken and finally let the Egyptians go. 
Numbers chapter 9 institutes the Passover as a time to remember God's deliverance from Egypt. And now we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. His sacrifice in blood and body for the payment of our sins. It was this sacrifice that satisfied the law, that justified us, and allows us, if we accept his sacrifice, to experience fellowship with God. Otherwise, we are separated from God forever. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 24 to see the rest of the story. Luke chapter 24, verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexing about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling cloth clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? And then verse 6, He is not here, but he has risen. Jesus wasn't there. You see, Jesus was offered as a sacrifice for our sins. We are justified by this gift. His resurrection confirms his victory over death. Jesus' real gift that we celebrate in his birth was his life, death, and resurrection. So to answer our question from earlier, what's Christmas without the cross? Christmas without the cross doesn't give us the complete picture. If we stop at the nativity story, we miss the point. Now Christmas is a day, a holiday, and a season where the world celebrates. As we discussed in the introduction, Christmas celebrations are very different for different people based on their perspective. However, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must remember that Christmas is about a special gift, and we must recognize and celebrate this amazing gift, but do so with the understanding that the incarnation of Christ fulfills Old Testament Scripture, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, that he was born to save God's people from their sins. He saved us through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. His death was payment for our sins. He rose on the third day victorious over sin, and he promises that if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God, and we place our trust in the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins, he will. So what's it going to be this Christmas? Will we get lost in the tradition of the Christmas season with trees and lights and gifts, simply giving nod to the birth of Christ? Or will instead we enjoy these traditions knowing that the true meaning and joy of Christmas can only be found in the shadow of the cross and in the echo of an empty tomb? This Christmas, I urge you, if you haven't already, to accept his gift of life offered through this tiny baby, his sinless life, his death on a cross, and his resurrection. He was fully God and fully man, and his gift to us is that he humbled himself 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. What more could he give? Those of you that came to last Sunday night to our Melanie Park family celebration through music heard a variety of songs, all related to Jesus' birth, his death, and or resurrection. But one song summarized what we've been talking about all morning. It's a song called, This Must Be the Place. I've asked Mark and Meredith and Christy to sing again for us that song today to help us step back and see the full picture of Christ's birth death, and resurrection. And I invite you as they sing to close your eyes and to listen to the words and envision what's being described. You'll hear the nativity, you'll hear the cross, and you'll hear the empty tomb. And as they're coming up, I'll pray. And then after we sing, or after they sing, we will have our Advent devotional led by the Hardy family. And what I want you to listen for is the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house today, that you, in your infinite wisdom, have given us your church to be a part of, that we can have community, that by your Holy Spirit, you have created an opportunity for us to have community, to pray together, and to celebrate. And Lord, today during Christmas, and this week during Christmas, I pray, Lord, that you would impart your wisdom on us, that we might not lose sight of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I ask that as we go through the Christmas season that we would enjoy the joy that you have provided for us in the gift of your Son and that we would once and for all recognize who he is and what he's done for us. Father, thank you for the blessing of this church body and I pray that you be with us as we leave from here. Father, thank you for the gift of music and the words to the song. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.